In case of rapture, this vehicle will be unmanned. The rapture, the only way to fly. 25 years ago or so, you would see bumper stickers like that with a major frequency. I can't remember the last time I saw one. But the belief system that inspired those bumper stickers is still very much alive among those who call themselves Christians in our country today and in the Western world, and not just the Western world. This doctrine is not a first century doctrine. Tribulational premillennialism, as it has been called, to look outside the Bible, which is where we have to look to find it, the very earliest reference to this doctrine, and this is admitted even by perhaps its best-known proponent, Tim LaHaye, in his book, Rapture Under Attack, where he is seeking to defend this doctrine, he admits within the first ten pages of his book that the earliest extra-biblical reference to this doctrine, which of course he believes it's in the Bible, but the earliest extra-biblical reference to it is in a doctrine called in a document called Pseudo-Ephraim, which is dated at the very earliest, 372 A.D., and maybe a document as late as 627 A.D. So it's a doctrine that is not mentioned anywhere until 340 years after the establishment of the church. I would think if I were in that position, that would be enough to seal the deal for me. Some version of this belief system was espoused in the 1700s. A Baptist pastor, quote-unquote, by the name of Morgan Edwards in Philadelphia discussed pre-tribulation, the pre-tribulation return of Christ in his book, Millennium Last Days, Novelties, 1788. He claims that he had written the same thing as early as 1742. But the doctrine really began to be popularized in England and America and Canada in the 19th century by a man named John Darby. John Darby had attended Trinity College in Dublin, Ireland. He was the founder of the Plymouth Brethren, or the Brethren. Those churches are not real numerous, but you see them here and there throughout the Midwest. He founded that group. And his doctrines were then perpetuated by a man named C.I. Schofield. And that's a name that's probably somewhat familiar to some of you. Schofield first published his Schofield Reference Bible in 1909. He revised it and was put out again in 1917. You can still purchase a modern, updated version under the title Schofield Study Bible. Go to your near, quote-unquote, Bible bookstore if you've got any more left in Des Moines. They've just about disappeared from Kansas City because Amazon rules in that department. But you can still buy that Bible. And I imagine some of you have one at home right now. And you'll notice in the notes the very kind of stuff we're going to be talking about today. The pre-tribulation version of this doctrine is taught by men who fill the airwaves. John Wolver, David Jeremiah, Charles Ryrie, Hal Lindsey, and Tim LaHaye, co-author of the Left Behind series. Some of you in this room may listen to some of those men. They believe in this thing we're talking about today. Tribulational premillennialism. Now, there are three versions of this doctrine. There's the pre-trib, mid-trib, and post-trib. And what that's referring to is when, during the quote-unquote tribulation, Jesus will come. Will he come before it, pre-trib, during it, mid-trib, or will he come at the end of it, post-trib? I'm going to focus tonight on pre-tribulation premillennialism. That's the form that's been popularized in the Left Behind series by Tim LaHaye, and I think probably is the most common form we will encounter. But let me just to explain, if we don't know this already, what we're talking about tonight is not some far-out weird idea that only a very small group of people adhere to. 
In the Kansas City area, the Baptist church is by far and away the most numerous with respect to congregations. That may be true in this area. But among those churches and all these community churches that are quote-unquote non-denominational, this is what these people are being taught. And they've been taught this for generations now. What we're talking about tonight is what they believe the last days will be like. Now, before we go over into the tenets of the doctrine, I do want to make a few remarks about the word rapture. Strictly speaking, the word rapture is not a problem. The English word rapture is derived from the Latin word raptus, R-A-P-T-U-S, and that word meant to snatch or seize. And we see it in our language. Birds of prey are called what? Raptors, because they seize their prey. You can be wrapped with attention because something has so seized your interest that you're caught up in it. Proverbs 5.19, a husband is to be enraptured with his wife's love. And that speaks for itself. Now this word, raptus, found its way in verb form into Jerome's Latin translation of the New Testament, which he made in the 4th century AD, the Latin Vulgate. If we were reading the Latin Vulgate in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17, where Paul says, And we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with him in the air, we would find the verb form of that Latin term, raptus. And that, the presence of that word in the Vulgate seems to be part of the reason, at least, that word has found its way into quote-unquote Christian nomenclature. But that word all by itself is not inherently wrong. I believe that the saints are going to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Don't you? I believe that. And I plan to be there. And I hope you plan to be there, too. Something like this has happened before. Hebrews 11.5, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death. I don't know what that looked like. Elijah was taken up by God into heaven in a whirlwind. Both of these individuals, one in what we've often called the patriarchal age, one during the law, both of these individuals did not see death, but were taken to the Lord before they ever died, and it's going to happen a third time. God often does things in three, except this time it's going to be worldwide. I believe that's going to happen. I know you do too. But it's not going to go down like our religious friends believe. And you say, why are we making such a big deal about this? We don't have to agree on everything. Absolutely. Why Why don't we just plan to be ready? Well, I can agree with that, except that I can't because of what we're going to get to momentarily. This doctrine is not just a different view of the end times. It's a different view of what you need, you and I need to do right now. According to Tim LaHaye in Rapture Under Attack, here is how it's going to go down. Jesus is going to descend from heaven, but his appearing will be witnessed by the righteous only. If you are among the unrighteous, you will not see Jesus. LaHaye writes, the Lord shouts as he descends, all this takes place in the twinkling of an eye, 1 Corinthians 15, 52. Anyone who does not participate in the rapture, that means if you're wicked, you won't be participating, will not actually see it, for it will occur in the twinkling of an eye. At that moment, when Jesus descends, the dead in Christ will resurrect first with changed bodies. Then those who are alive and remain, who are righteous, their bodies will also be changed. And then the two groups together, and not all of this is mistaken, the two groups together will ascend to meet the Lord in the air. They'll be raptured together to meet Jesus in the air. And then Jesus will take them to the Father's house, heaven. While in the Father's house, they will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. But because they're all righteous, none of them will be condemned. 
Now, there may be disappointment. There may be you'll be saved so as through fire. There's going to be a cleansing, a purging. But everyone ultimately is going to be saved who ascended with the Lord in the rapture. So the judgment seat of Christ is not an occasion where anyone's going to be condemned. While they are in the Father's house, while they're up in heaven, great tribulation will begin and take place on earth for three and a half or seven years, depending upon which proponent you talk to. And during that time, those who got left behind, who were all wicked, they will have the opportunity during the rap, during the tribulation to turn to the Lord. And according to this view, many of them will. After that three and a half or seven years has passed, the Lord will celebrate the marriage supper of the Lamb with those up in heaven with Him, with the raptured, and then they will all descend and God, Jesus will set up His earthly kingdom. And that earthly kingdom will persist for a thousand years. It will be the millennium. And after that time, the wicked will be resurrected. And they will be judged. So how does all that fare when compared and contrasted with the teaching of Scripture? Not very well. You know, I imagine you can relate to this. I have encountered false doctrines in my lifetime that really gave me pause. Where I really had to work through them. I mean, Calvinism was one of those things for me. I could see that Calvinism's conclusions were not in keeping with the character of God, but what to do with many of the passages they were citing, I knew not. I had to really work. That was one of the hardest studies I ever did. It was harder than Revelation for me, personally. And I've encountered other doctors where I thought, well, I don't know. And sometimes you have to let it simmer, maybe a few months, maybe a few years. And as you learn more, you kind of start piecing it together. You go, oh, I see now. No, that can't be right. The doctrine of the rapture is not like that. In my opinion, it is so out of step with what the Bible reveals that, and I don't mean offense, I don't know if there's anybody in this room who believes this. If if you do, please know I am not directing this at you. I don't mean this personally. But it seems to me that the only thing that can keep this doctrine going is profound ignorance of some of what the Bible says because it is so strikingly out of step with what the Bible reveals. For example, The Bible is clear that Jesus' coming will be a singular event. That is, it will be unique and it will happen once. Timlin Hay attempts to argue against that. He cites Titus chapter 2, verse 13. Titus 2, 13, Paul said the Christians should be looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. He said, did you notice the and there? We're looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing. These are two separate events, he attempts to argue. That is an egregious example of reading meaning into Scripture rather than drawing it out. Would someone without any preconceived ideas ever read the passage that way? I feel certain, almost certainly not. But let's take plain reading, plain passages and let's let them elucidate the more obscure. When Jesus spoke of his return, did he ever talk about his return? Sure he did. He told all these parables and frequently his return would figure in those parables. He told the parable of the marriage of the king's son in Matthew 22. How many times did the king come to see the guests? Once. In the parable of the ten virgins in Matthew 25, how many times did the bridegroom come? Once. In the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, something with which we're all very familiar. How many times did the Lord come to settle with settle accounts with both the righteous and those who weren't ready? Once, in the parable of the penas, or pounds, in your King James, the nobleman returns once from a far country. That's in Luke chapter 19. Every time Jesus described his coming in a parable, he described one coming. 
He spoke of the coming of the Son of Man. In Matthew chapter 24, three times he refers to the coming of the Son of Man. The Lord's Apostle Paul spoke of the coming of our Lord. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. So every time Jesus spoke of his coming in parables, it's a single coming. He spoke of the coming of the Son of Man. So also did the Apostle. And Jesus referred three times in John 6 to the fact that his followers would resurrect at the last day. Now just think about that for a moment. The last day. According to the doctrine I was just reading, you've got the saints being resurrected and going to meet the Lord of the air, but is that the last day? By no means. There's seven more years, and then we've got a millennium. Jesus said he would resurrect his followers at the last day. John 6, 40, 44, and 54. That leaves no future days for a subsequent return, for a seven-year tribulation, or a thousand-year reign on earth. The scriptures speak, do not speak, of a second, second coming. They, they do not speak of a third coming. Hebrews 9, 28. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time. Jesus is coming again, not again and again. Jesus is coming, the Bible teaches us, will be singular, and it will be visible. Acts chapter 1, verse 11, there are the apostles standing on top of the Mount of Olives. We've just watched Jesus ascend in the air and be disappear into the clouds, and there are these two men, and these angels, and what do they say to them? Acts 1, 11, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go. He's going to come back the same way you saw him go. You saw him go, you're going to see him come back. 2 Thessalonians 1.7, Paul says, When the Lord is revealed, the Greek word there is the exact same word that's in Revelation 1.1 for revelation, apocalypsis. This word means just the opposite of hidden. Jesus is going to appear. He's hidden from our sight now, but the day is coming when he will be no longer. First John 2.28, little children, abide in him that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed. Hebrews 9.28, he will appear a second time. Well, yeah, but he's only going to appear to the righteous, John. Really? Regardless of what side of the planet you're on, you're going to see Jesus. I tell you, in that night, Luke 17, 34, Jesus says, there will be two men in one bed. One will be taken and the other will be left. So it's going to be nighttime in the world when the Lord returns. Well, Luke 17, 36 and 37, two women will be grinding together. Two men are going to be in the field. So the Lord's going to return. It's going to be a worldwide event. And what does Revelation 1 say? Behold, he is coming with clouds and what? Every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. Those who pierced him, where are they right now? Where are their bodies right now? They're dead. When the Lord returns, every eye will see him, even the eyes of the dead. The Bible teaches us that Jesus' return will be singular. It will be visible to all. It will be audible to all. You know, there's interesting. There's some disagreement among the proponents of the rapture over whether or not the lost are going to hear when Jesus comes back. They say, no, the lost aren't going to see him, but maybe the lost will hear something. Not everyone agrees. First Thessalonians 4.16, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. A shout, a voice, a trumpet. That's been called the noisiest verse in the Bible. 
This is a symphony of sound the Lord intends to be heard. When God descended on Mount Sinai, the sound of the trumpet was very loud so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. Exodus 19.16. So as it will be when the Lord's return. Not only will the dead see him, John 5.28, Jesus said, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice. Even the dead are going to hear it. And he explains in the following verse that among the dead who are going to resurrect, you're going to have the righteous and the wicked. The righteous and the wicked dead are going to hear it. Certainly the righteous and wicked living will hear him as well. When I was in college, some of you have heard this story, but I think maybe it's been 15 or 20 years since I told it in Iowa, so maybe I can get away with it now. I was in college my freshman year in Springfield, Missouri. My roommate and I had one class together, and it was one of those classes, you know, where it's in this enormous hall, and the instructor was not terribly interesting. The topic wasn't terribly interesting, and the lights would be dimmed a little bit, maybe because they, I don't remember. I don't remember what was going on. Um, my roommate was dozing. He's right next to me. He's dozing. He, uh, we did attend services together. He was a Christian, but academics weren't his thing and this class didn't make it easy to be an academic so he's he's resting over here to my left and the old you know this is what i'm dating myself now this is almost 30 years ago sound systems you know have their problems and we're sitting there in the class and something goes wrong in the sound system and this huge sound comes out of the sound system it's just this blurt of a sound something like that and he you know he's been asleep he hears the sound and he immediately just stands up. <laughs> he sits down. And we're talking about this later. He said, I thought the Lord had returned. <laughs> I don't know that standing up is what will be happening at the Lord's return. But he heard a sound. And he knew there was to be a sound at the Lord's return. The Bible teaches us that the Lord's return will be singular, it will be visible to all, it will be audible to all, and on that day, all will be resurrected and judged. Remember, this doctrine says that only the righteous dead will be resurrected, and they're going to be taken to heaven for seven years. And then remember, you've got a bunch of people who are getting converted during that seven years, and they're all getting slain by the Antichrist and his forces. So when they come back, they resurrect. So now we've got two resurrections of the righteous, and maybe the Old Testament saints are resurrected at the same time. Then we go a thousand years of the millennium, and then the wicked resurrect and are judged separately from the righteous. So we've got at least three resurrections there and two judgments. Tribulation millennialists teach that there's a resurrection of the righteous at the rapture, and just exactly what I described. What does the Bible say? Acts 24, verse 15, Paul said to Festus, I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection, both of the just and the unjust. John 5, 28 and 29, do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming. Isn't it interesting? Jesus says hour there. This is John 5, 28 and 29. He doesn't say day. Because we know, you know how day is. Day can sometimes prophetically mean a year. It could just mean a space of time. Jesus doesn't even leave room for any of that. He says the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. Those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. It's all going to happen in that hour. It's a moment in time. A single resurrection 
and a single judgment. These people believe, and I just I speak that way, these individuals believe that there's going to be a, a judgment of the righteous before the judgment seat of Christ, and there's going to be the great white throne judgment from Revelation 20 only for the wicked. But what does Jesus say? Matthew 25, 31 and 32, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the Goats, the sheep and goats will both be there at the moment of his return. This is further evidenced by the fact that there are references in the Gospels to the last day, as I've mentioned before, but notice the references. Martha didn't know what the Lord was going to do about her deceased brother. And Jesus, she says to Jesus in John eleven twenty four, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. She had confidence that her brother had served the Lord. And he's going to rise at the last day. So the righteous are raising at the last day. But Jesus said, which we've already noted, that the wicked would be judged on the last day. John 12, 48, he who rejects me and does not receive my words as that which judges him, the word that I have spoken will judge him on or in the last day. So the wicked and righteous alike are both going to be there on that day. Both will be resurrected. Both will be judged. I'm stealing a line, but it's such a good line. The truth is some, it's just so simple we can hardly leave it alone. It's very simple. And thank, I'm thankful for that. I like complicated things sometimes. But this most important profound thing, it's simple. It's straightforward. Jesus is coming back. It will be sudden, but it will not be secret. It will be visible to all. It will be audible to all. And its accompanying judgment will be final for all. And this is why it matters. This is why we're talking about it. The rapture gives people who believe in it a false hope. Because if I am not ready at the rapture, what do I get? I get a second chance. And you say, well, do people really think that way? You better believe they do. I had a sister who's now in the Lord tell me when she was raised in the denominational world, she said, John, I was banking on that second chance. Scripture tells us that when Jesus returns, all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Revelation 1, 7. Because they'll have a second chance? Because they will have squandered their only chance. Rapture is a ruptured doctrine. What about that tribulation? It is believed that after the rapture, the worst suffering in human history will begin to unfold. LaHaye calls it the greatest time of tribulation in all of history. He wrongly cites Matthew 24, 21, which is talking about events leading up and surrounding the destruction of Jerusalem. He quotes this concerning the end times. But then there will be great tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. He cites a whole bunch of references from the prophets saying that this time is referred to in Jeremiah and Deuteronomy and Obadiah and Isaiah and Zephaniah, calling it a time of trouble, the day of wrath, the day of their calamity, and on and on and on. As I've mentioned already, it'll either be for three and a half years or seven years, depending upon your understanding of the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy in Daniel 9. Say, so what, what, why, why would this terrible tribulation take place? Well, according to those who believe in this, it is for this purpose, quote, to shake man from his false sense of security. Earthquakes, plagues, and other physical phenomena will so shake man's natural confidence that when he hears the gospel through the preaching of the 144,000, he will be more open to its offer of forgiveness. 
This view says the tribulation is not for the church because after all, the church has been taken to heaven. The tribulation is for Israel, physical Israel. And they will, as a result, end up repenting in mass. And there'll be this gargantuan number of Jews who finally turn to the Lord at last and some Gentiles as well. The purpose of the tribulation, they say, is to force man to choose Christ or Antichrist. Let's talk a little bit more then. We got an order of events for the rapture and some of that. Let's talk about the order of events for the tribulation. After the church is raptured, the Antichrist, a man who is yet to come, will sign a covenant for seven years with the nation of Israel, per supposedly Daniel 9.27. When he signs that covenant with Israel, that will initiate the tribulation. It will inaugurate that period. Many of those who believe in this doctrine believe that God's going to take the Holy Spirit away from the earth during this time. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7, we read that he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. That's the Roman imperial power, but they believe that's the Holy Spirit. So God's going to take the Holy Spirit away from the world. Now, how you're going to have Christians on earth during the tribulation without the Holy Spirit, to my knowledge, is never explained. It might be out there. I'm sure it's coming by, on, by somebody. But they believe the Holy Spirit will be gone. Of course, a world without the Holy Spirit and the Antichrist is there. That's going to be a terrible disaster. Revelation 6 will then, the first seal of Revelation 6 will then be opened. And the rider on the white horse, believed probably to be the Antichrist, he'll appear. He'll start using diplomacy and the promise of peace to establish his one world government. Now, I'll dare ask the question. I've read the Left Behind series all, but maybe, I don't know how many I haven't read yet, but I've, I've read the main storyline to the end of it. It was an interesting read. I mean, I'll admit, I'm not encouraging anybody to read it, but if you choose to read it, it makes for an interesting read. Does, is anybody in the room willing to admit whether they've read it or not? Okay. <laughs> I probably shouldn't have asked that. Uh are, they, are those the only members of the club? I don't think those are the only members of the club. Well, it, it's interesting, and what it reveals is the reason why I thought about that because that wasn't in my notes, but is that the proponents of this they seek to take books like Daniel and Revelation and Zechariah and elsewhere. They seek to take them literal as they, as literal as they possibly can. And so when you and I are reading in Revelation nine about these horse-like locusts and all this stuff, you know, we're, we realize we're reading symbols. But some among this, they take this very literally. And if you've read those books, you get to see it spelled out in living color. And it's frankly quite bizarre and kind of hard to believe that someone would believe it. But people do believe it and are in dead earnest about it. So the second seal introduces great world wars. Then this third seal, there's famine and inflation. The fourth seal, wars and death. And one-fourth of all the human population is going to die as well as one-fourth of the animal population. And we're just getting started. It just keeps escalating and worse and worse and worse. And the earth becomes this horrific place to live in. There's the martyrdom of all these converted people. The 144,000 are supposedly these Jewish evangelists. They become converted, and they're like the Apostle Paul. They're just more effective than the evangelizers we have right now, and they're able to go out and have great success. But all the while, the Antichrist is exercising his one-world government. He's consolidating, creating a one-world religion. And the world, literally, the world becomes completely opposed to these few of God's people, and they're out to kill them and and do the worst. Well, finally, the Antichrist dies. But Revelation 13.3, applying to this man as they understand it, says that his deadly wound is healed. Revelation 12 says Satan is cast to earth. 
Revelation 13 says the Antichrist's deadly wound is healed. They teach that Satan is cast to the earth and he actually inhabits the body of the Antichrist and raises him from the dead. So this man who was already awful for three and a half years is now really awful because he is possessed by the devil. And again, they're in dead earnest about this. And they believe this. And the tale goes on until Jesus finally descends the purported second installment of his second coming. And in the midst of the battle of Armageddon, he conquers the world and initiates his millennial reign. It's quite a story. It's a fascinating one, but it's a false one. One of its many problems is that this view of scripture seeks to take revelation literally. Here's what Lovell Hay writes. Separating Israel and the church is one of the major keys to rightly understanding Bible prophecy. The second key, key to taking the prophetic pardon me, the second key is taking the prophetic scriptures literally whenever possible. Well, is there some prophecy that's literal? Sure there is. And yet as I go through the books that they lean on so heavily, what do I find? In Daniel, I have this dream where there's this vision and these body parts, and I'm told the body parts of this man-like image are kingdoms. I'm told in chapter 7 and 8 that these beasts are kingdoms. They're not literal beasts that are coming. I'm told that it becomes evident that days stand in for years. In Zechariah 4, I'm told that olive trees are symbols of men. I'm told in Zechariah 5 that this woman is a symbol of wickedness. It's said outright. In Revelation 1.10, the seven stars are the seven, the angels of the seven churches. In that same verse, the seven lampstands are seven churches. There was a great sign, says John, in heaven in chapter 12 and verse 15. I saw another sign in heaven. Seven heads are seven mountains. The waters which you saw, what are they? They're peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. And what's the very first verse of Revelation 1.1 say? Jesus sent and signified it. What's the root word for signify? Sign. And I look in my Greek, uh, one of my Greek sources, and Vincent says this, from Sema, a sign. Hence, literally, to give a sign or token. So to take a book like Revelation or like Zechariah or like Daniel and seek to take it as literally whenever you can, it's a misuse of Scripture. There's a lot more that we could say. This doctrine puts a thousands of years between the 69th and 70th week of the prophecy in Daniel 9. The text says nothing of that. The first 69 weeks are consecutive. So also is the 70th. It teaches that the Antichrist will not come until the end of the world. And if we carefully, if we carefully study Daniel 7 and 2 Thessalonians 2 and 1 John and Revelation and even a little, little reference there at the end of Zechariah 11, if I understand it right, it becomes clear that the Antichrist came some 1,500 years ago and is among us still. It applies all of Matthew 24 to the time just before Jesus' glorious appearing when it's obvious that it's a reference to the destruction of Jerusalem. It makes God's plan for humanity into something bizarre and sensational. Interesting reading, but a little ridiculous, quite frankly. As I begin to draw this to a close, very close to drawing it to a close, does that mean there will be no tribulation before Christ's return? Certainly not. Their understanding of it is mistaken. We're told in Revelation chapter 20 verse 9 that the enemies of the cross of Christ went up on the breadth of the earth and they surrounded the camp of the saints. If you're in Christ Jesus today, you're a camper, right? Because this is not your home. You're living in a tent right now and one of these days the tent's Gonna go, 
and you're going to go on to the homeland. You're a camper. And the saints are going to be surrounded, the scripture says. If you are in an ancient city or a camp, you wake up one morning and you are surrounded. Think of what that means for you. Everywhere you look, you see the enemy. Apparently that will be what it's like when the Lord finally returns. Everywhere, however many saints are left, they will see the enemy. You think of how long the Lord puts up with things. He's not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is what? Long-suffering. Why does he bear? He bears in the hope that people will repent. He waited so long that in the days of Noah, how many righteous people were there when the flood came? I like asking trick questions. You knew that. You know, it doesn't say that Noah's family was saved, that they were, that they were righteous. It simply says Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. How many of Lot's family were righteous? It's only said of righteous. It's only said of Lot. He's the only one who's called righteous. The Lord may have waited when in the days of Noah, there may have been people that attempted to crunch the numbers in the Genesis flood. Henry Morris and John Wickham did some of this. I mean, there may have been tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people on the earth before the flood came. But even if those numbers are wildly exaggerated, let's just say one million people. One million people. And there may have just been one on the whole planet. Let's say all eight. Eight out of a million? The Lord waited that long. I don't know how long he's going to wait this time. But he will not tarry forever. The world and the lust of it, they're passing away. We've heard some good things today about where our world is at. Um, you know, I've lived just long enough that I've been able to see some very significant changes in my life. I was born in 1974. And when I went to school, yeah, there, there were scoffers. But still, um, the things that are we heard about this afternoon, I mean, you know, these things were made fun of or not even talked about even then. We've seen a huge transition. We've seen people go. There, there were a lot of quote-unquote Christians in the class school. The most popular kids were Christians. And I was in an urban high school. This hostility didn't exist. We went from this kind of this general consensus where even if we don't live by it, yeah, it's the right thing. The Bible's good. I probably should be doing it. To, to apathy. And now we're, we're, we're walking into hostility. I don't know how long the Lord's going to wait. But I think of Peter's words. Acts 2, he tells them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the mission of sins. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then it says, he exhorted them with many other words, saying what? Save yourselves or be saved from what? This untoward, this perverse generation. We live in a perverse generation. The invitation is extended. If you are not saved from the perverse generation, now is your moment. You don't know that you'll have another one. Please seek the Lord while he may be found. Let's sing.